0: Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back to this ongoing study of the book of James, which we said is one of those often neglected books in the New Testament, but nevertheless a book that really should be of great interest to American Christians in particular because it is an eminently practical book. And Americans tend to be practical people. But as we're going to see, it is precisely because James is so practical that perhaps this book has been controversial in the past because James doesn't pull any punches. And we're going to see that that is certainly the case as we turn to today's section. So if you have your Bibles, and I encourage you to bring Bibles to this class, you'll be blessed by that if you do. So bring your Bibles with you. There's an old collect in the prayer book. We sometimes use it. Grant, O Lord, that we may so read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest thy holy word. Well, You cannot read it, mark it, learn it, or inwardly digest it if you don't have it in front of you. So I encourage you um, to bring your Bibles along and to bring a marker, or to bring a pen, and take a notepad, and be blessed by the study of God's word. We're going to begin today at James chapter 1, beginning at verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll come back and take a closer look at this section of James. So, beginning at James chapter 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have a different translation. You may have the King James Version. You may have the New International Version. You may have the Revised Standard Version. Any of those translations is perfectly fine. Um, You're only going to see that there are slight variations. And sometimes those slight variations throw a little light on the text. But I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So if your translation is just a little bit different, don't be alarmed or disturbed by that. So James writes, beginning in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. When I read through James's words, particularly there in verse 19, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves, I can't help but think of fanaticism. Because if you think about it, that's really what James is talking about. He's talking about being a fanatic for Christianity, being a fanatic for Christ, being a fanatic for the word. What does he say? Do not be doer, doers he says do not be hearers only, excuse me, but be doers of the word. Don't deceive yourselves. That means that James says when it comes to the Christian life, you're either all in or you're all out. But there's really no middle ground. And he thinks, he says, if you think you can simply hear the word and even believe it, that is to say, give it intellectual assent, but it makes no difference in the way you live your life, he said, you've actually deceived yourself. The the impression that he gives here is that you're a person who is not just self-deluded, it's almost as though you're insane. He says, you're like a person who looks at his own natural face in a mirror, but then turns away and forgets what he or she looks like. Now, as I said, that's a pretty powerful language, and especially when you're talking about the language of fanaticism. That is something that is very unpopular today, particularly when it comes to religion. We're very leery of fanatics, or are we? Actually, what I would suggest to you today is that people are fanatical about all sorts of things. And sometimes we don't find that to be bizarre, we actually encourage it. For example, people are fanatical about college football. I mean, Clemson fans, it's almost a religion, folks. And that's no exaggeration. Where I came from... Uh, In Pennsylvania, we had football rivalries, Penn State versus Pitt and so forth, and college football was a thing, but most of the people that I grew up with were concerned with the NFL. When I moved to the South, I quickly discovered that college football is the thing, and these rivalries go deep. People are fanatical. I mean, look at those people. Can you imagine being that fanatical for, for Christ or for your religion? But that is exactly what people are. My wife was telling me, she teaches over at the O'Quinn School on James Island, and she said that one day they were having a discussion in the teacher's lounge, and one of the young women made a derogatory comment about the head coach of Clemson. Oh, see, there you go, right there. And she said an older woman, the oldest woman on staff, almost scratched her eyeballs out. You dare not say anything about St. Adabo. See, we're, we're enthusiastic about those things. We're fanatical about those things. We'll move our schedules around. We'll do whatever it takes to support our team. So we're fanatical about sports, and college football in particular. You could be fanatical about history. That's something I know a little bit about. I was never a reenactor. I find them to be more hysterical than historical, oftentimes. <laughs> But, you know, there are people who want to dress up and go out and try to experience the life of a Revolutionary War soldier or a a soldier who fought in the war between the states. I have met people who are so serious about this, they will only eat what the soldiers ate. They'll only eat hardtack. I, I think if they could get dysentery just so they could experience what it was like for a Civil War soldier, they would actually do it because they are absolutely fanatical about this. And yet we don't look at them as though they're bizarre or that they're dangerous. People in our culture are fanatical about health and wellness and exercise and their bodies. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not suggesting to you that keeping your body healthy and well is is a bad idea. The reality is our bodies, the scripture says, are temples of the Holy Spirit, and they are very important. But let me tell you something, when I see somebody at one o'clock in the afternoon in Charleston, when the heat index is 105, out there jogging, that is a fanatic, folks. They are crazy. And not only that, but they're going to go home, and to sort of cool down, they're going to drink a huge cup of kale. all ground up, and that's because they are fanatical about their health. They're fanatical about their well-being, and we don't look at these people as strange. We look at these people as commonplace, and we're certainly fanatical about politics. We are fanatical about politics. The existence of CNN and Fox News is evidence, proof positive, that we live in a culture in which people are fanatical about politics. I'm sure there are some houses that the minute that you walk into that house, you can hear one of those two networks on the television. So we are fanatical about all sorts of things in our culture, and these things are accepted by society. We don't look at these people as necessarily dangerous or as bizarre, it's become commonplace. But there is one area where, for whatever reason, we are not supposed to be fanatical. And that's when it comes to our religion, isn't it? Religious fanatics are dangerous. We think of religious fanatics as those who perpetrated the acts that we saw 20 years ago on September 11th. That's the kind of person that does that, the, the religious fanatic. And so we're very anxious about people who are religious fanatics. And yet James is talking about a fanaticism here. He's talking about, as I said, being all in or all out. There's no middle ground. You're either completely committed to Christ in all ways, or he says you are absolutely deceiving yourself. Now you begin to get an idea of why James is such a controversial letter. It's not because, contrary to what Martin Luther said, there is no gospel in James. Actually, there is gospel in James. He talks about the necessity of the new birth in the first chapter. He's going to go on to talk about believing in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There is gospel in this book, But James is very clear, if you believe that gospel, if it's really made a transformation in your life, it should be evident in the way you live. When he talks about a mirror here, that's really what this book is designed to be, a mirror held up to our own face that we might see ourselves as we really are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. And quite frankly, that can be a very uncomfortable experience. And yet there is a sense in which we should be fanatical about anything at all. It should be that we are fanatical about our religion. You know, that word fanatic is an interesting word. The word fan, sports fan, whatever it may be, that word fan or fanatic is an interesting word. It comes from the Latin, the Latin fanaticus, and it literally means, as you see on the screen, to be inspired by a divinity, to be controlled by by a god. So those of you who went with me in the footsteps of St. Paul, one of the places that we visited was Delphi. And you got to see the place where the oracle of Delphi was located. The oracle at Delphi would have been considered a fanatic because it was believed that she was possessed by the power of an ancient deity and it was through the power of that deity that she was able to foretell the future and grant prophecies and that sort of thing. Now, we think that that's bizarre, we think that that's ancient superstition, but if you think about it, the word could apply to a Christian, because a believer in Jesus Christ is someone who has been reborn. Reborn how? By the power of the Spirit, that is exactly right. A Christian is a Spirit-filled person. So, in this sense, every Christian, if they're a spirit filled individual, if they have been reborn by the power of the Spirit, which is what Jesus tells Nicodemus, he has to be, if he's going to see the kingdom of God, every person who is legitimately a Christian, who is really trusted in Christ, who's really experienced that new birth, should be, in a sense, what? Inspired by the divinity, carried along by God, a fanatic. Now, what does Christian fanaticism look like? What does it look like? What does it look like to be a fanatic for Jesus Christ? Does it mean only going to church, never missing a Sunday service? Well, it's interesting the way James puts it. As I said, he is eminently practical in this letter. Look again, beginning at verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. But the one who looks into the perfection of the law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What does Christian fanaticism look like? James says it is evident in the simple things. It's not just memorizing Scripture, although that certainly is important. He said, look into the law. In order to be a doer of the law, you have to know what the law says, but it's not just that. It's not just attending religious service or being faithful and you're tied to the church. He says real religious fanaticism, living for Christ in a radical way, being all in, is evident in the simple things in life. Like, for example, controlling your mouth controlling your tongue. This is a theme that James is going to return to. Do you know how difficult it is to control your tongue? James will go on to describe the tongue as the smallest member of the body, and yet he says one of the most destructive. It's like the atom. The atom is such a small thing, but if you split the atom, it unleashes a tremendous amount of power, And some of that power can be used for good, and some of that power can be used for destruction. About two weeks ago, I was um, in Pennsylvania. I was actually leading a tour, and on the way back, um, we stopped at Dulles Airport. We had a layover, and it was about six hours. What are you going to do at Dulles Airport for six hours? I mean, there's nothing. But we discovered that the Air and Space Museum has an auxiliary unit there at Dulles Airport. And I went there, and there are amazing things. The space shuttle Discovery was there, all these marvelous things that we could see and explore, all of the space capsules and so forth. It was absolutely fascinating. But the thing that I found to be the most riveting, and the thing that actually sent chills up my spine, was to actually look at the Enola Gay, the plane that dropped the atomic bomb, and to read the story of how that actually transpired. The navigator, who had to set the bomb so that it would detonate, had to climb on top of it in order to set it, and he had no idea what he was sitting on top of until they dropped the bomb, and they looked behind them, and they saw that huge mushroom cloud, and they thought to themselves, what in the world have we done? That's what the atom has the ability to do, and James says, that's what the tongue has the ability to do. It can do great good, it can build people up, but on the other hand, it can be very destructive. It can destroy lives. How many of you have ever heard, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me? How many of you have ever heard that saying? How many of you believe it? It's one of the biggest lies in the world. Actually, words can sometimes hurt you a whole lot more than any kind of physical harm. And that's what James is talking about. What does simple fanaticism look like? What does true, to, true total Christian dedication look like? First of all, he says it looks like being someone who is able to bridle his tongue. Keep watch over his or her mouth. He says it's about purity of living. Slow to speak, slow to anger, putting away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receiving with meekness the implanted word, keeping yourself unspotted from the world. you know how hard that is? Of course you do. Because all around us we are bombarded with images and with ideas, many of which are anything but godly and conducive to the upbuilding of the person in the full stature of Christ. So James says, What does Christian dedication look like? Controlling your tongues, purity of living. And then he goes on to say this, and caring for the unfortunate. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. That is to say, if you go to church every Sunday, you pay your tithe, you receive the sacrament... You've memorized all of the catechisms and so forth, but you cannot control your tongue and the words that you speak are destructive. He said, your religion, all of that practice is what it is worthless, he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit the orphan and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, let me just ask you a question, a couple of questions. How many of you, be honest, have difficulty bridling your tongue? Okay, that, that's honesty right there. That's, my wife calls it the holy restrainer. That's what she refers to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes she says you need the holy restrainer. It's not that the Holy Spirit inspires you to say something. Sometimes he just helps you keep your mouth shut. And sometimes that's just as important if you think about it. How many of you find it difficult to remain unspotted from the world? And I'm not talking about notorious sins here. All right? I'm not talking about notorious sins. But just how many of us have a tendency to fall into the world's way of thinking? The world's standards of excellence or value, those things that the world says are important. How many of you struggle with that personally? And how many of us oftentimes have a tendency not to want to help the poor, but to look down on the poor. You know, sometimes we just think to ourselves, well, they're in that situation because they put themselves in that situation. See, what James is doing here, he's holding that mirror up to our own faces. And you ask the question, well, why do I want to be fanatical? It is so difficult. See, the Christian life, my friends, is not easy. That's something that we have sold people. It's a a false narrative that if you become a Christian, everything's going to get better in your life. Because we've taught them that the only thing about being a Christian is to believe in Christ, get your ticket punched so that when you die, you can escape the late great planet Earth and go to heaven. But being a Christian is not just about the future, it's about the present We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Christ. What James is talking about is being a reflection of the Lord himself. Being a Christian, being a fanatic for Christ is hard. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said, If anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. You know, the cross in the first century was a symbol of death. That's what it represented. It has become to us a symbol of life. You look over the skyline of Charleston, at least this end of the peninsula, and you see all these buildings that are crowned by these beautiful crosses, just like St. Philip's. But in the first century, the cross was a symbol of death. And not just death, the most humiliating and degrading death possible. And that's what Jesus was inviting his disciples to come and do, to come and die to self. And that is a very difficult thing to do. Let's just be honest. The reason why we don't want to be fanatics or fans for Christ is because it is so very hard. It is so very hard. So if it's so very hard, why should we want to do it? Practically speaking, since James is such a practical book, why? Well, first of all, James says, it's because it's only in doing that we see ourselves for what we really are. We should long to be fanatical for Christ, he said, so that we may see ourselves for what we really are. In other words, fanaticism leads to self-knowledge. I've used this illustration before, you've heard me talk about it. The picture of Dorian Gray. The story of Dorian Gray was a man who sold his soul... To the devil, that he might remain forever young. He had this painting that was done of him. It was a magnificent portrait, and um, like Narcissus, he pretty much fell in love with his own reflection. He just loved the way he looked, and he always wanted to remain just as he was in that portrait. And so he sold it, sold to the devil, and um, he didn't age. It's kind of a creepy story when you actually read about it. People were really. Creeped out by this man. He was very impressive, very handsome. But having given himself over to the devil, he begins to commit all of these terrible acts. He uses other people. He uses women. He abuses people. He takes advantage of them. He engages in all kinds of destructive, even murderous behavior. And yet he never ages. But the painting did. That's the creepy part about the story. There's this portrait that he had painted. And while he never aids physically, every act that he commits is depicted there on that portrait. And this man who had been so handsome, so attractive, suddenly begins to turn into this grotesque creature. So grotesque, in fact, that there comes a point where he can't stand to look at himself anymore. And so what he does is he takes a drape and he puts it over the portrait so he doesn't have to look at himself anymore. And let's be honest, that's what we oftentimes do, don't we? We drape ourselves with a cloak of respectability, but we really don't look into our own hearts, into our own minds to see what's really going on. And the challenge is to pull back the curtain and see what you're really like. And that's what James is talking about here, that we might see ourselves for what we really are. Not that we might despair, mind you. but that we might recognize our need for the Savior, and that by His grace we might be transformed. So one of the reasons why we should endeavor to be fanatical for Christ is that it will help us to realize what we're really like, to see ourselves as we are, not as we imagine ourselves to be. Here's the second reason. He said, it is this kind of behavior, this fanatical, all-in kind of commitment that ultimately leads to acceptance with God. Look at verse 27. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled, that is to say acceptable to God, is to do these things. Now, when James talks about acceptance before God, what he's not talking about here is justification. He's not saying that by your works, by your efforts, by doing these things, you earn your right relationship with God. That's not what he's talking about. But what he is saying is that the whole of our lives is to be one of sacrifice. We are to give ourselves for Christ because Christ gave himself for us. We say this every Sunday in the liturgy, don't we? And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord... What? Ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. You know, if you actually listen to the words of the liturgy, you know, sometimes we've been listening to these words for so long, we become somewhat desensitized to them. You know, that can happen to us from time to time. The old expression is that familiarity breeds contempt. Well, it may not breed contempt, but sometimes it does breed apathy. But sometimes, don't just say the words, actually pull the prayer book out of your pew, or actually look at the words in the bulletin, and don't just say them, but actually read them as you're saying them. Some of us are, you know, we learn auditory, we're auditory learners by hearing, but some of us are visual learners. That's certainly the case with me. If I see something in writing, I'll never forget it. But if you tell me, maybe. 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 That's one of the reasons why I love name tags, to be perfectly honest with you. If I see your name, I'm not going to forget you. If you tell me your name, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But sometimes when you actually look at the words in the liturgy, those words are powerful words. Especially if we take them seriously. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies. To be a reasonable, holy, and acceptable sacrifice unto thee. And for punctuation, there you have it. That is what you and I are called to do. And James's point is that not all religious sacrifice is acceptable to God. That's one of the reasons why we begin the liturgy with that collect for purity one of my favorite prayers in the prayer book the colic for purity almighty god unto whom all hearts are open all desires know and from whom no secrets are hid cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy holy spirit that we may what perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name Because God is not simply concerned with what we're doing outwardly. He's concerned with what's going on in the inside. He's not simply concerned with what we do. He is absolutely concerned with why we're doing it. That's his primary concern. And that's why we pray that prayer. It's the first prayer that we have in the liturgy in the hopes that you and I might be pure. That the sacrifice that we might offer might be one that is really One that comes from the heart. Keep your finger there in James and turn back, if you will, to Psalm 51. Now, most of you, I think, know the story behind Psalm 51. If you don't, I'll fill you in briefly. Psalm 51 is a psalm of David. King David, the great Old Testament king. It's really a confession of sin. David was a very wealthy and powerful man. In those days, kings were absolute leaders. They were not elected officials. They were not constitutional monarchs like we have today. They were absolute rulers. And David was one of those, a very powerful man. And we're told that in the spring of the year, when armies would go out and campaign, the king normally went with the army, but for whatever reason, David decided to stay home. And because perhaps he was not where he was supposed to be, he ended up falling into sin. He was walking on the top of the palace one day, and he looked over the garden wall into the neighbor's yard, and he sees this beautiful woman, and she is sunbathing, Bathsheba. I'll tell you a little story. This is a confession on my own part. When... Um, Yeah, confession is good for the soul, so everybody brace yourself. My mother's here, so she really needs to brace herself for this. (laughs) But when I was in seminary, um, I had a professor who said, um, I've got a friend down at St. James Church on James Island near Charleston, and he's looking for an assistant. And he said, would you be interested in interviewing for the job? Well, at those times, seminarians and deacons were well, they're under the control of the bishop. They basically belong to their bishop, and my bishop was the bishop of Pittsburgh. But the bishop of Pittsburgh had said that he didn't know if he had any openings in the diocese, but he would think about releasing me, but he wasn't sure. I said, well, I've got this opportunity to go down and interview with this priest in Charleston. I said, can I do it? And he said, well, you can go and interview, but you can't take the job. (laughs) He said, we'll have to see about that. So at any rate, I thought to myself, I don't know if I should waste the church's money and you have to understand, this was, this was, you know, March, and I was living in Washington, D.C., and I don't know if you know what the weather's like in Washington, D.C. in March, and I thought to myself, free trip to Charleston, or I'm going to take the free trip to Charleston. So I did, and I came down, and I interviewed with the priest over at St. James. His name was John Howard. He's now the Bishop of uh, Florida. And I interviewed and had a great time. And he said, have you ever been to Charleston? I said, oh, I was in here at Charleston when I was about six years old. I said, but I don't remember anything about it. He said, I I said, I know, you know, some of the history and so forth. And he said, well, you need to take my car. And he said, you need to go ahead and drive downtown and just, just get a feel for the place. And so I did. I borrowed his car, and I was driving downtown. In those days, you didn't have GPS, so I'm just sort of wandering around. And I wandered or drove by Colonial Lake. And it was a warm day, and it was about 84 degrees. And there were all of these young co-eds that were sunbathing down there from the College of Charleston. And I don't think God spoke audibly to me, but I did hear a voice that said, This is the promised land. (laughs) Now, mind you, I was not married at the time. But I did hear a voice. Well, David was in a similar situation. Uh, Yeah, David saw this woman, and he was moved by her, and he desired her. And as it turns out, you know the rest of the story. He ended up having an adulterous relationship with her. Now, even in those days, royal families were concerned about scandals uh, to such a degree that what David wanted to do was to cover up the scandal. He didn't want anybody to find out about this. And he knew that this woman was married to one of his officers who was out there campaigning with the army, a man by the name of Uriah. And so what he decides to do is he decides to put this man on the front line and get him killed. This way, it sort of covers things up. This just goes to show you that some of the biblical characters were not perfect. But this is what he does. And Uriah is killed. And David thinks that it's all been under the carpet. Nobody knows anything about it. And he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. But while nobody else knew about it, there was someone who did. And that is God. Because he is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and he is the one from whom no secrets are hid. And he's confronted by the prophet, Nathan. And Nathan comes to the king and he says, sire, we've got a problem in your kingdom. And the the, the problem in the kingdom is that a great injustice has been done. And David said, well, I'm the king and and we've got to have justice in the kingdom. Tell me about this injustice. And the prophet says, well, there was this man. And he's a poor man. He doesn't really have anything. The only thing he really has is a little lamb. And this this lamb is precious to him. It's like a member of his family. It sits at his table. It, it, It sups from his cup. It's a precious thing to him. But this poor man, who had only this little lamb, had a neighbor. And the neighbor came along, and the neighbor took that lamb, even though he had flocks and herds of his own, he took that little lamb and he slaughtered that lamb and he gave that lamb to his friends for a feast. And David was outraged. He tore his clothes. He said, whoever that man is, he deserves to die. It takes a great deal of courage to speak truth to power. Let me tell you something. And the prophet looked into the king's face and he said, Your Majesty, that man is you. You did it. You did it. You could have had any woman in the kingdom that you wanted, but you wanted her. You killed her husband, and now you've taken her. And no one else knows about this adultery. Nobody knows about this affair. Nobody knows about this murder, but God knows about it. It's not hidden from Him. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, David's response is Psalm 51. So listen to these words, because this is the prayer of a broken man. This is the prayer of a man who's pulled back the curtain, and he now sees himself for what he really is. This is the man, incidentally, who's described as a man after God's own heart. And here's what David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, in one sense, that wasn't true. David had certainly sinned against Uriah. He'd certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against the trust of the entire nation. But he knows that ultimately, who he sinned against is God. He's violated God's law. And look at how he describes it. He says, and I have done what is evil in your sight. You know, sometimes we downplay the gravity of sin, don't we? Do we recognize that sin is not a small thing? Some years ago, there was a professor at Calvin College. His name was Cornelius Plannigan. He wrote a little book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin. He said there used to be a time when people took sin seriously. He said Catholics would line up on Saturday evening to say their confession to the priest. Protestants would rise up on Sunday morning to say the general confession. He said, a man who lost his temper with his wife at the breakfast table might wonder whether he should still go to Holy Communion. He said, a woman who resented her older, more attractive sister might wonder if her very salvation was in jeopardy. He said, but alas, that shadow has dimmed. And now the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a wink and in a tone that signals an inside joke. Doug, you old sinner. You knew that was coming? Well, that's what you get for sitting up front here. See, that's what we've turned sin into. We even talk about certain desserts that are sinfully delicious. But David recognizes that sin is not a small thing. He describes it here as evil. He said, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. Now, that's a very interesting expression, hyssop. What does he mean, purge me with hyssop? Hyssop is a branch. It's a tree. It's a plant. Well, once a year on the day of atonement, the priest, having slaughtered the lambs for the sacrifice of the people's sins, would dip the hyssop branch in the blood and come out and sprinkle the people with it. So when David says, purge me with hyssop, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, what I have done deserves death. And the only way it can be atoned for is by death. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth shall proclaim your praise. That's where it comes from. And then he goes on to say this. This is the pertinent verse for what we're talking about. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's what God wants from us. That's what James is talking about. To be fanatical for Christ is to have a broken and a contrite heart. It's to see ourselves for what we really are, to repent of that, and to desire to be better. That is the sacrifice. That is the religion that is acceptable to God. It's not just going to church It's not just doing the acts of contrition. It's not just making your confession. It's acknowledging and it's bewailing. We say that every Sunday, don't we? And we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against Thy divine majesty, provoking most justly Thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent. It's interesting. Acknowledging and bewailing are two different things. It's one thing to acknowledge you've done something wrong. It's another thing to be sorry for it. And that's what James is talking about acknowledging your sin, being sorry for it, our manifold sins and our what? Our wickedness. Be honest, how many of you actually think of yourself as a wicked individual? Well, some of you do, well, good. But that's what we are. We don't think of ourselves that way. You know, we sing that hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Oh, we sing that tears come to our eyes. But if somebody else calls you a wretch, you're going to be offended by it, aren't you? We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and our wickedness. Folks, we need to understand that we're not wicked because we sin. We sin because we're wicked. And what James wants us to understand is, is that that is who we are. And only God can take away this heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And when He does, we will desire to serve Him not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of a sense of gratitude. And that is the religion. That is the sacrifice that is acceptable to God, pleasing in His sight, that rises before Him like a fragrant offering. So when James says it makes you acceptable to God, he's not talking about coming into a right relationship with God. He's saying that it is pleasing to God. It is the work that God finds acceptable. Furthermore, it's our bounden duty and our obligation, isn't it, as Christians? Robert E. Lee once said that duty is the sublimest word in the English language. Somehow we've lost the importance of duty. As Christians, we have a duty a duty to serve the Lord. James goes on to say another reason why we should want to be fans, even though it's difficult, is because it brings blessing. He says that in verse 25. It's pretty straightforward. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. How many of you would like to be blessed by the Lord? We all long for that. We long for blessing. What James is saying, well, figure out what the word of the Lord is. That is to say, read the Bible, read, mark it, learn it, inwardly digest it, understand what it means, and begin to live according to that way, and you will find blessing in your lives. It's as simple as that. Simple, but not easy. There are lots of things in life that are simple, but they're not easy. But if you want to be blessed, that's the way you do it. And another reason, he says, why we should want to be fans is not only because that is what is acceptable to God. That's not only the way to be blessed, but it's also the way to be a blessing to others. It's the way to be a blessing to others. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5 is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. which, as you've heard me say many times before, is not prescriptive. It's one of the most practical sections of the gospel, but it's not prescriptive. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, if you do these things, this will happen. It's descriptive, really. He's describing what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you claim to be a kingdom of, a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is what your life will look like. Matthew chapter. 5, Jesus says this, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others. That they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, James is telling us that there is a sense in which we should all be fanatical. This is the way we are to live our lives, and we are to live our lives this way because that is precisely how Christ lived his life. He emptied himself for the sake of others. Now that brings us, we only have about 10 minutes, but we're going to start. Chapter 2. And this is a section that flows. Remember that in these letters, there were no chapter divisions. Chapter divisions were put in at a later point to make the Bible reading easier for us. But actually, this argument that James has just made about being fanatical for Christ flows directly into what he now says in chapter 2. He's expanding upon this. And he deals with something that I think will hit very close to home. That's one of the reasons why I said this is a section of scripture that almost needs one of those warning labels on it. You know, sometimes when you watch a segment of the news in which there's been some catastrophe in the Middle East or something, the newscaster will come on and he'll say, Now, we want to say that this. What is about to follow may be disturbing to some viewers. Well, I want you to understand that what James is about to say may be very disturbing to some people. That is to say, even more disturbing than what you've just heard. Chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're going to be fanatical for Jesus Christ, and he said that's what it means to be spirit-filled, is to be fanatical for Jesus Christ, to be all in. He said part of that means you can show no partiality. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? This is one of those sections where James is no longer preaching. He's really meddling. There is within every single human being a longing for acceptance. Every single one of you wants to be accepted. I call it the cheers mentality. You remember that old sitcom, Cheers, had that, that theme song It says, I want to go where everybody knows my name. That's what we're all longing for. Human beings were created to be in community, in fellowship. Cats are solitary creatures, but human beings are not. And we have this longing to be accepted, this longing to be included What's the worst thing that you can do to a prisoner? Place them in solitary confinement. We have a longing for acceptance. If you have a teenager living in your house, you know how true this is. Teenagers have this longing to be accepted, to be a part of the group. There's nothing that's so discouraging and so depressing to them than to be ostracized and put out of the group. But it's not just teenagers. We all have this longing. And most of us spend our whole lives trying to be included. Paul Tournier, who was for many years a famous Swiss psychologist and a Christian counselor, tells the story of how on one occasion a young man came to him. Uh, the young man came from a broken home. His mom and dad had been divorced. He'd gone off to college. He was sort of a just an outsider. He was different from everybody else, never really fit in anywhere. He dropped out of college, couldn't hold a job, nothing was working right, and finally found himself in Tournier's office, and he's talking about all of this. And Tournier, at the end of the counseling session, finally just asked him a, a very blunt question. He said, if you had to sum up what, you, what you're longing for more than anything else, what is it that you really want in your life? And the young man paused for a moment and thought, and then he looked at Tornier and he said, I suppose what I really want is a place. He said, I suppose more than anything else, what I want is just to belong. And if you think about it, that is the universal desire. We all want to belong. It's not just a problem for teenagers. As adults, we want to belong. How does it feel to be cut off? To be excluded. It's such a painful and hard thing. And yet oftentimes in our desire to be included, we do exclude others, don't we? Somehow we seem to think that being included means that we have to make sure that other people are not. What is it that our culture values? What is it that our culture admires more than anything else? Admires wealth, doesn't it? There's no culture, I think, in all of history that admires wealth more than anything else. When you see a wealthy person driving by in an expensive car, or you see somebody living in an affluent neighborhood, what do we normally say? He's very successful. That's how we judge success in our culture, isn't it? By how much wealth you have amassed. It's the golden coin. No pun intended. Here's the silver coin Beauty. Beauty. Have you ever seen an ugly model? And a model is just that. They are set up what? To be an example for us to follow. So we admire wealth in our culture, we admire beauty in our culture, and if you don't have those things, you are often what? Mocked and excluded. Mocked and excluded. And I said, it's not just a problem for kids, it's a problem for adults as well. Who is it that are the movers and the shakers in American society today? It's people like them. Who are they? Wealthy people. They're the ones we read about. They're the ones we admire. They're the ones we want to be like. Or them. The beautiful. See? It's no different for adults than it is for children. And who are the ones that we read about more than anybody else? The powerful Whether we like them or not, we can't help but be entranced by them. This is what our culture values. And we have this longing to be like that. But in our desire to get into the inner circle, we oftentimes find ourselves excluding others. And that is exactly what James is talking about here. My brothers, show no partiality, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let's be honest. We gravitate toward people like us, don't we? How many of you would have to admit, I tend to gravitate toward people who are like me? Why? It's the comfortable thing to do, isn't it? And yet James is saying here that what you're really doing is you are showing partiality. And it's not just a problem in the culture. Unfortunately, it is also a problem in the church The church sometimes exhibits this. Sometimes the church even fosters this. Sometimes the church even encourages it. I had a parishioner in my last parish. He is a dear friend, one of my dearest friends. But he was raised a Baptist. And um, he had heard about St. Helena's for years, but he refused to come to St. Helena's. And finally, he showed up in my Sunday school class one day. And he was there with his wife. And I knew of him, but I had never really met him. But somebody came up to me beforehand and said, that's so-and-so and his wife. And they're out here, and we've been trying to get them here for years, but they haven't been willing to come. So don't blow it. Well, I felt the pressure. But afterward, when he finally joined the church, and got confirmed and all of that, we're sitting down having lunch one day, and I said, you've got to tell me, why was it that it took you so long to come to St. Helena's? And he said, you want to know why? I said, yeah. He said, because you had the reputation for being the rich church. You had the reputation for being the rich church. Now, the irony was, <laughs> this man was rich. He was, he was an affluent individual, but he didn't come from affluence. He came from very little He became affluent, but what he didn't want was to be around people that were all alike. You know, sometimes the church can get a reputation, can't it? James is saying it shouldn't be that way with us. Now, we're going to finish out this discussion next week, how we are supposed to be different as Christians. But what I want you to see is that this is one of the reasons why James is such a controversial book. This is not just ethereal theology here. James is trying to tell us that if we're serious about our Christianity, we need to be fanatical about it in the sense that we don't just take it as a minor thing. We can't compartmentalize our lives. This needs to be the whole of who we are, and it needs to be reflected in every aspect of our lives. So this letter, as difficult as it is, it will be one of the most difficult letters that you will read. In some ways, it's more difficult than the epistle to the Romans. Now, the theology in Romans is complex. Don't get me wrong. When you get to Romans chapter 9 through 11, and he's talking about the doctrine of election and predestination, oh, you're going to struggle. But there is a sense in which that is an academic exercise for many people. This is about how we live our lives on a daily basis. This is about the friends we keep. This is about the people we excuse. The people we exclude. This is about the way we talk. These are very practical things, and they're very difficult things. But James is holding that mirror up to our face, not in the sense that we might go away from here feeling condemned, The purpose of this class is not to make you go out of here feeling worse than when you came in. But the point is that we might see ourselves as we really are. That we might see ourselves in the light of eternity. That our hearts might be broken. That we might, like David, fall before the Lord and acknowledge our manifold sins and our wickedness, but know that He is the God whose property is always what? to have mercy. But you only appreciate mercy when you recognize your need for it. And that's what James is doing. And if we take his words to heart, what we will discover is that we will begin to be a different people, a different fellowship, a different community. The kind of community where all sorts and conditions of men and women are welcomed kind of community that really is a reflection, a picture of what heaven one day will be like. A reflection of the one who was very powerful, who had all the riches of creation, but who laid them aside and took the form of a servant and humbled himself and mounted the arms of the cross and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice that you and I, who were on the outside might be brought into the inner circle. That we who were far off might be brought near. That we who were excluded might be included in the family of God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the book of James. There is a lot here for us to chew on. We see ourselves in these words. I see myself in these words. And it is a difficult message for us. But we know that all Scripture has been written for our learning. That we might be ever more transformed in the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. That is the end goal. That is the purpose of this letter and all of Scripture. So grant us the grace, Lord, to see ourselves as we really are. Not to turn away in disgust or derision, but to look at this, to take it to heart. And if we see something here that is amiss, like David, to come before you with broken hearts. Because that is the sacrifice that is acceptable to you. We ask that you grant this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, thank you very much.